is good to see all of you here today for week two of Joshua. If you are new with us here today, my name is Pete. I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here, and I am excited about what God is doing in our church. I'm excited that we get to do this in a country where we don't fear persecution or that at any moment the government could come in and shut us down. How many of you are grateful for the independence and the freedom that we have to live in the greatest country on the face of the planet. I hope you guys don't take that for granted, but I hope you also realize that there is no freedom apart from Christ. That some of the freest people in the world live in countries where there is the greatest oppression and tyranny and dictatorship. And yet here in this country where we have freedom, there are some people who are still bound up and in slavery, spiritually speaking. And so this morning, we're going to hopefully learn some more truths from the life of Joshua. We can apply to our lives and experience some of that freedom ourselves. But uh, in case you missed last week, we kicked this thing off by learning and looking at Joshua chapter 1, who after Moses died, uh, Joshua is appointed to be his successor. And here he is, you know, taking over as the leader of an entire nation. And he's freaked out a little bit. He's a little scared, and so God has to remind him over and over and over again throughout the first chapter of Joshua to be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and very courageous because he was afraid, and so God had to encourage him, and he told him this promise in verse 3 of Joshua chapter 1, everywhere you set your foot, I will give it to you, right? And so we learned that in our own lives as followers of Jesus Christ, that we have an authority in Christ and that when fear rises up to try to keep us from pursuing and stepping into the promises of God, what are we supposed to do? We've got to step on it. Some of you were paying attention last week. We've got to step on it because everywhere we step our foot, God has given us that land. All right? So that was last week, this week. And speaking of stepping on it, actually, um, our very own founding pastor, Craig McLeod, is doing just that. As many of you know, he has uh, taken a huge step of faith uh, and is received and accepted a new assignment in Christ's kingdom to become the director of church mobilization for HBI Global Partners. And Craig is back with us here today. Uh, so excited to have him with us. You know, they took a huge leap of faith uh, when they resigned the roles at the church and are depending entirely on the Lord to provide for their personal financial support through the giving of people who want to team up with them in this new venture that they're on. And so last week, for those of you that were here, we handed out a letter with a response card to everyone that would want to pray about joining Team McLeod. And I just wanted to quickly let you guys know how you can do that if you're feeling led to partner with them. The best way, the easiest way, as you just heard a few moments ago, for those that use electronic forms of payment, PushPay is the easiest way to do that. So I would encourage you to download PushPay, search for HBI Global Partners in the search bar of that app, and then under references, once you put that on there, search for and select Craig McLeod Support. And so I encourage you to stop by the back table. He's going to be at the back after the service today with some information on HBI and with some more letters for those of you that may not have been here last week. Uh, he has more letters that he can give to those of you that would like to learn more about how you can team up with him. And I would just encourage you guys to really pray about how God would use you to team up with Craig and Carol to change the world together. And so I hope that you'll look forward to touching base and connecting with him and catching up with him after the service. So today what we're going to do, though, is we're going to fast forward a few chapters 
and Joshua. Last week we were in chapter 1. Today we're going to be in Joshua chapter 5 for those of you that want to follow along. And the events that transpired between what I preached about last week and what we're going to talk about this week in chapter 5 actually took place in what I preached about three weeks ago when they crossed the Jordan River. I know the timeline is a little bit convoluted here, but like I said last week, that sermon could have really been a part of this series that we're in. And so if you missed that, I would encourage you to jump onto our website and listen to Marking the Miles, uh, which was really the story of them crossing the Jordan and God telling them to take some stones with them to build a monument or a mile marker to commemorate God's faithfulness to them. And so now here we are in chapter 5, and they've crossed the Jordan. They are in the promised land, although it's not theirs yet, because it's occupied. There are people that already live there, and so they're going to have to fight to take possession of it. And they are camped out on the other side of the Jordan River in enemy territory when God gives them what to me is probably one of the most odd, strange requests that I could possibly think of. And I think you'll agree with me. So if you want to jump in, we're going to begin in verse 2 of Joshua chapter 5. It says, At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haraloth. Kind of an odd request, wouldn't you agree? God says, hey, Joshua, I want you to circumcise the Israelites again. Now, I'm not really a medical genius, but I'm pretty sure that's not something you need to do twice. Right? Now, if that's what you're thinking, let me explain this to you guys, because it, it's not something he was asking him to do a second time. But before I explain it to you, I wanted to just share this little bit of interesting information that I discovered as I was uh, preparing for this message. The place where they did this circumcision, this Gibeah Haraloth, in case you were wondering what that actually means, it means hill of foreskins. How would you like that as an address for a place to live? Hey, where do you live? Oh, I live at 132 Hill of Foreskins. <laughs> Just odd. This is all odd and very awkward, isn't it? And maybe you're here at church, maybe for the first time today, and you're thinking to yourself, what in the world is this dude talking about right now? But let me give you the backdrop and explain the meaning of this to you. See, hundreds of years before this took place, God had made a deal a promise, a covenant with a guy named Abraham where he was going to give him a land that he would give his descendants. And part of that deal, okay, Abraham's end of the bargain, was that he would circumcise all of the male children in his family. Now, we all know that circumcision is something that happens when a child is a couple days old, not 20 years old, right? And for good reason, because you won't remember it. But this became a Jewish custom, and they would circumcise the boys days after birth as a sign of the covenant. And this continued for generations. And if you remember from last week, the Israelites, because of a famine, would wind up in Egypt where they would eventually be put into slavery. And they continued circumcising the male children even while they were in slavery in Egypt. But then when God sent Moses to rescue them, to free them from Egypt, you know, they go into the wilderness, and the Bible tells us they stopped circumcising the boys. We don't know why. It doesn't tell us why they did it. Maybe it's because it was dusty. Not a great environment to do that kind of procedure. 
Maybe it's because they were constantly moving around and it wouldn't have had time to heal. But for whatever reason, they stopped circumcising the boys after they left Egypt. And if you remember the backstory that I gave you guys last week, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because of doubt and disbelief until that adult generation had died off. So during this 40-year span, an entire generation of younger Israelites grows up in the wilderness. So when God says to Joshua, I want you to circumcise the Israelites again, he's not asking them, he's not asking him to do it a second time. He's asking him to reinstitute the practice, to start circumcising the boys again. But even still, can we not agree that this is kind of a really odd and really strange request, especially right before battle, because they're about to go and start fighting the inhabitants of the land. And you're about to take all of your inexperienced fighting men into battle against bigger, stronger armies and fortified positions, and God says to do this. It, It just doesn't make any sense. And not only that, God waits until they're on this side of the Jordan to ask them to do this. Now, if I'm Joshua, I'm really questioning this. I'm going to be like, God, couldn't we have done this on the other side of the Jordan? Why, if you're going to ask me to cripple all my fighting men, why wouldn't we do this before we cross the Jordan where we at least have a barrier and some protection before we're exposed and vulnerable in enemy territory? It just makes no sense. But how many of you guys know that sometimes God does things that don't make sense in our lives? Sometimes God asks us to do things that just don't make sense. They don't follow along with conventional wisdom. The world will tell you to do things one way, but God will tell us to do it a different way. And we we would look at God and say, God, that way doesn't really make any sense. Like conventional wisdom in our culture would say that if you're going to marry somebody, you should move in with them. You should sleep with them so that you can make sure you're sexually compatible. You know, you can save money by combining your bills, right? That makes sense in the world's eyes. But God says, no, I want you to remain separate and pure until you exchange vows and say, I do. God, that doesn't make sense. Or when you get your paycheck, you know, that you've worked so hard for all week, and God says, I want you to bring the first fruits. I want you to give it to me through the church. But God, that doesn't make sense. I've got bills to pay. I've got got mortgage. I've got car payment. I've got insurance. God God says, no, I want you to bring the first 10% and give it to me through the church. God, that doesn't make sense. Maybe somebody at work or in your neighborhood is just like really giving you the business or spreading rumors about you and you want to just give them the business and give them a piece of their own medicine and God says, no, I want you to pray for your enemies. I want you to bless those who curse you. Here's what we need to realize. Sometimes God asks us to do things that don't make sense in the world's eyes, but they are necessary to him. And what I want to teach you today through this is that there is a purpose for the process. There's a purpose for the process. You might not see it. It might not make sense to you, but there is a purpose for the process. God, I don't understand, but I believe that you're, you're calling me to take a step of faith and go out here and do this. There's a purpose for the process. Come on, everyone say that with me. There is a purpose for the process. If you want God to bless your marriage, then you need to honor his process. If you want God to bless your finances, you need to honor his process. If you want God to bless your life, you need to honor his process because there's a purpose for the process. There's a purpose for everything that God asks us to do in our lives, but you have to trust the process. 
Why, you ask? Why? God, I don't understand. Why do I have to trust the process? Well, because we don't see what's on the other side. God sees things that we can't see. And so we've got to trust the process because there's a purpose for it. And can I tell you what the purpose is? You're going to love this. I'm going to give you another P. The purpose for the process is the promise. I'm going to say that again and give you guys a chance to respond the way you should respond when you hear a word like that. The purpose for the process is the promise. How many of you believe God's got a promise for you? God is a good God. He gives every good and perfect gift, comes down from the Father of of love above. He wants to give good gifts to his kids. He's got good stuff in store for us. He's got promises for us. He's a dad that loves his kids. All of his promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. His promises are to bless us, to give us a hope and a future, but you have to trust the process. Joshua had to trust the process too. You see, if you don't know or understand the context of the request, you wouldn't understand the importance of why God was asking him to do this. See, because circumcision was the process that was tied to the promise of the land. Remember, I shared with you several hundred years before this, God spoke to a man named Abraham. I said, I want you to pack all your things up, take your family to a land that I will show you where, God. I'll show you when you get there. Trust the process. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. Your descendants will be like the stars of the sky. But God, I don't have any kids. Trust the process. God, it's been 25 years since you said you were going to give me a kid. I don't have any more. I don't have any kids still. Trust the process. And so God makes a deal with Abraham. He makes, it's not just any deal. This is a covenant. A covenant was a promise sealed in blood that you couldn't go back on. And I want to take you back to when this covenant covenant was first initiated. In Genesis chapter 17, hundreds of years before Joshua, God speaks this to Abraham. He says, the whole land of Canaan, that's where Joshua now is. He's crossed the Jordan into Canaan, and he's speaking to Abraham several hundred years earlier, this whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. And look at verse 10. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you're to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So that's where it got started. And that's why God told Joshua, circumcise the Israelites again. But if I'm Joshua and we've just crossed the Jordan, like I said, we're about to go into battle with a bunch of inexperienced 20-something-year-olds who, you know, we don't, they're not battle-tested. I'd be like, you want me to cut them in the most sensitive area of their bodies and make us vulnerable and exposed in enemy territory? Yes. God, this doesn't make any sense. But if you understand the covenant, it makes perfect sense. God says, I can't give you what I want to give you until you go through the process. Circumcision was the process tied to the promise of the land. The purpose to the process is God's promise. So when you don't want to endure the process because it's painful, remember the purpose of it is to lead you to God's promises. So my question to you today is, what process is God trying to work out on you? Because we're all in process, right? And a lot of times he's got to work in us some things that he wants to work out of us 
that are a little bit painful. But he wants to do it to bring us to his promise. So what process are you trying to get out of right now because it's uncomfortable or too painful that God's trying to do in your life? You know, maybe there's some people talking about you at work or spreading rumors and you want to set the record straight and God's saying, no, I want you to keep your mouth shut and take it on the chin. Because maybe he's trying to teach you humility. You need to trust the process. We've got to go through things in life that will shape our character. You've got to trust the process. Maybe God's trying to deal with a sin in your life and you want him to just remove the desire for that sin from you. And he says, no, 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 I'm not gonna remove the desire because I wanna go deeper. I wanna take you through a process that will help you understand why the desire is there. We can deal with the fruit all day long, but when you expose the root, then we can make some progress. Then I can lead you to the promise. But that process is sometimes painful. It requires a cutting away of some things in our lives. There's a process. Maybe he's trying to develop you for ministry and you've been serving in different positions within the church and maybe you feel like you haven't been recognized or you, t- you think it's taken too long and you, you wanna be here but you're still serving here. You gotta trust the process. He wants to teach you submission. He wants to teach you faithfulness. He wants to see how you're gonna handle disappointment. You gotta trust the process. Turn to your neighbor and say, trust the process. Because the purpose of God's process is to lead you to the promise. Joshua was obedient to the process and he circumcised the Israelites. It didn't make sense, but he trusted God and he obeyed. And because he trusted God, look at what God says to him in verse nine. Then the Lord said to Joshua, today, because you've done this, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. Because they were obedient to God, he was able to remove something from their life that would have stood in the way of what God wanted to do. And when we surrender to God's ways and not our own, that's when God can remove the shame of our past and put you in a position to receive his promises for your life because blessings always follow obedience. The purpose of the process is the promise. And listen, part of the promise isn't just stepping into the blessing and the promise of God for your life. Part of the promise is him removing the shame of your slavery, removing the reproach of Egypt, the shame of your past. Some of you haven't been able to step into your future because you haven't been able to let go of the shame of your past. If God only knew what I've done, if God only knew what I've been through, then he wouldn't be able to use me. And God says, I want to remove the reproach of Egypt from your life. I want to roll away the shame of your past. That is part of the process of preparing you for the promise. But you got to trust the process. And today, God wants to roll the reproach of the shame of your past and the slavery of Egypt from some of you here today because he's got a promise for you. And so they crossed the Jordan, and they obeyed God. They were circumcised. And I want to show you what happens next in this story. We're going to pull out some powerful truths that we're going to apply to our lives today. In chapter 5, verse 10, it says this. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. 
There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. Now I want to camp here for the next little bit and talk to you about how God wants to meet our needs as we head into a season of stepping into God's promises. Because I don't know about you, and I don't know if you can relate with me, but I oftentimes have a hard time trusting God to provide for my needs when I'm stepping into unfamiliar territory. I don't know if you can identify with me in in that. When I moved to Columbus five years ago, I had a hard time trusting and believing that God was going to be able to meet my needs as I was stepping into what I believed he had created me for. But it says they celebrated the Passover. The Passover was a ritual. Okay, when they were in Egypt and slavery and God sent Moses, you know, to rescue them, he performed 10 miracles, 10 plagues, you know, that were done before Pharaoh that prepared Pharaoh to release them. The 10th plague was when God sent the angel of death into the land to claim what was his, the firstborn of, of every living thing in the land. But God told Moses to, you know, instruct the Israelites to kill a spotless male lamb and take the blood from that lamb and put it on the doorposts of their home, and that when the angel of death came, it would pass over their homes. And that became something that they would celebrate and commemorate every single year to remember that when the next morning came, they woke up a free people. That's how God rescued them and freed them from slavery. And so that was the Passover. It was something that they did every single year. And it says the day after the Passover, they ate some of the produce of the land. Now, we could read that and think, you know what, that's no big deal. We just keep reading the story. But think about that. That might not sound appetizing to us because when I walk into a grocery store, you know, the produce section is my least favorite part. I go for the meats. Meats and cheeses is where it's at for me, right? Some of you, it's it's the bakery, you know, the donuts or the Little Debbie snack cakes or something. I don't know what it is for you, but for them, if you think about it, Some of them may have never had fruits or veggies before because they grew up in the wilderness. So for the last 40 years, they couldn't grow grapes or strawberries or vegetables. They had survived on this substance called manna. Now, how many of you here have heard of manna before or know what that was? Okay. Well, for those of you that may not be as familiar with the story of the Israelites and what happened, manna was a substance. It was a miracle that God had provided for them while they were in the wilderness, okay? Every morning when they woke up, shortly after they left Egypt, you know, there were two, two and a half million people. They started to run out of food. You know, they were, they were starving. They were hungry. They were angry. They were hangry at God saying, why did you bring us out here just to kill us off in the wilderness? And so God hears them, and he does this miracle. And every morning when they wake up, after the morning dew dries, there was this white, flaky-like substance, this seedy-like coriander-type white seed on the ground that they would be able to collect and mash together and be able to bake into bread. It was like heaven's bakery opened up, and they got to have breakfast bagels every day for 40 years in the wilderness. They didn't know what it was. In fact, you know what the word manna means? The word manna means what is it? means, what is it? They didn't know what to call it. So could you imagine waking up in the morning and, and mom's like, hey, son, can you go get some of the, what is it? What is it? I don't know. Just get some of the what is it. That's what they called it. Manna, what is it? They had no idea what it was. They only knew that God had given it to them. But can you imagine, like, collecting this stuff every day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner? I don't know about you, but that sounds all right to me. 
Because I love bread. How many of you love bread and carbs? This story proves to us that carbs are sent from heaven. So for all of those low-carb diets out there, it's like, this tells us, bread from heaven, right? I, I love bread. I just wish bread loved me. Something happened when I turned about 30 years old. My metabolism changed. And now when I look at bread or anything bread-like, it immediately just goes to my waistline. That's going to be one of the questions I ask God when I get to heaven. What is the deal with carbs and weight gain? I don't understand, God. It's not fair. But I love bread. And I'm sure the Israelites loved it too when they were starving and it appeared and and God gave them something to eat. But how many of you know that breakfast, lunch, and dinner for 40 years, that would start to get old after a while? And so they started to complain about it. And you know what I've discovered? When we pray and ask God for something in a difficult season, and then he gives it to us, shortly thereafter, we're complaining about the very blessing that we ask God to give us. God, if I could just, if I could just get a raise, I'd, I'd be so grateful I'd be able to pay my bills. If I could just get this job, you know, I would be, I'd be so grateful. And then two years later, can't stand my boss. Drive is miserable. The hours are terrible. God, why am I here? Didn't you ask him for a job? God, if we could just get a house, it would be so great. If we could get out of this apartment, my landlord is is crazy. I just, if we could get a house, it would be so great. And then you get a house. It's like, man, why are things always so tight? Why is everything breaking all the time? I can't stand this house. We complain about the very things we ask God to bless us with. And that's what happened to the Israelites too, because it was manna every day. How many different things can you make with manna, Right? I mean, I imagine like, mom, what's for dinner today? Well, it's Monday. It's manna loaf today. Dang it. You know, next day, mom, what's for dinner? Hey, it's Taco Tuesday. Manna tacos today. Ugh. I can imagine maybe the only time they got excited was when mom said, hey, we're having manicotti today. <laughs> How many of you know that? Well, never mind. Could you imagine only getting manna to eat every single day of your life? And for this generation, that's all they had known. But what we need to understand is that it was only supposed to be a temporary item on the menu. If you remember from last week, the backstory that I gave you, after they left Egypt, God had brought them to the edge of the promised land after about two years. But because of fear and disobedience, it turned into 40 years. What they were only supposed to eat for two years turned into the main course for 40 years because they didn't trust God. Manna isn't meant to last forever. And like the Israelites, sometimes God will allow us to go through difficult seasons in life. Sometimes he leads us there like he did Jesus into the wilderness. Sometimes it's the result of our own dumb decisions like the Israelites. But for whatever the reason, sometimes he allows us to go through difficult seasons And we learned a couple weeks ago that he will allow that. He will allow in his wisdom what he could easily prevent by his power because he's more concerned with our character than he is with our comfort. You might even be going through a really difficult season in your life right now. Maybe you're here today and you're not sure why you're in this season, but maybe God is allowing you to go through a season of feeling really spiritually dry and dead inside. He might allow you to go through a season where your bank account is always short 
He might allow you to go through a season where your body just seems to be failing you, where your career takes two steps back. Maybe you've gone through a difficult divorce or you've lost a loved one recently. Maybe you had another miscarriage and you lost another pregnancy. There are seasons in my life where I felt like all that I had was enough manna to make it through the day. If you're in a season like that, please know that there is manna. There is provision for you. We just have to see it. But manna isn't intended to be forever. Because in these seasons, what we need to understand and what we often miss is that God says, I'll still give you manna. It might not be everything you want, but I'll meet your needs. He'll give you what you need to make it through the season. And sometimes God leads us through those seasons where all we have to live on is manna. But even in those seasons, God wants us to know that he, there is provision for him. There's promises of provision in him. He will meet our needs. God is our provider. One of the names they had given him back then was Jehovah Jireh, which meant God is my provider. He will meet all of our needs according to his riches and glory. It doesn't mean he's always going to give us what we want, but he will always give us what we need. Now, I want to give you just a little bit of insight as to how this miracle worked because I want to show you something that will speak to you if you've ever been in a place of need and, not, and wasn't sure if God was going to come through for you. Because when the manna began to appear, he would instruct them to say, collect and gather only what you need for the day. And those that weren't sure if it was going to be available the next day, there were some that were disobedient and tried to gather more than what they needed and could have eaten in the day. And guess what happened? The next day they woke up and it was spoiled rotten. There were maggots in it. How many of you know that God promises to meet our needs but it's often only enough for that day. That's why Jesus said, pray that God will give us this day our daily bread. Don't worry about tomorrow because today I'm going to meet your needs. What God wants us to know today is the same thing that he wanted the Israelites to know back then, which is that God was using manna to teach them to trust in him and not themselves. He was using the manna to point them to the master. He was teaching them that every day they needed to trust in him for their provision. You know, and isn't this one of the hardest things for us to learn as a people? Even in a country like the promised land that we live in with so much opportunity, it's how many of us are trying to provide so hard and not trusting God for provision, right? Let's be honest. That's one of our greatest fears in life. That's one of my greatest fears, that I'm not going to be able to make enough, that I'm not going to be able to accomplish enough, that I'm not going to be able to save enough, that I'm not going to be able to retire, right? I look at the what the projected costs of education and college for my boys are, and I'm thinking, how am I going to pay for that, let alone have enough money set aside for retirement? We're always fearing that we're not going to have enough. And can I tell you something? If you look to manna as your source, it will never be enough. If you look to manna as your source, it will never be enough because manna was never intended to be their source. It was intended to be their provision for a season, and there's a difference. It was God's way of providing what they needed in a way that taught them to depend on him. Because when you trust in manna, it will never be enough. When you trust in your money, when you trust in your title, when you trust in what you can build and what you can accomplish, it will never be enough. Because when you, when you trust in your provision as your source, it's never going to be enough. It'll never be enough because he wants us to trust in him, not in manna. but I want you to know that God has more in store for you than just manna. God has better for us than we've known to this point. He's got promises that he wants us to step into 
and inherit. And he had promises for the Israelites too, but they had to choose to cross over. One day they were eating manna, the next day they were eating melons, but they had to cross over. And in your life, you need to make a decision of faith to cross over into the promises of God. And once you cross over, God has something better for you on the other side. I've seen people trust in Jesus for their salvation, but they never take their next step in following him because there's always a next step to take when you're following Jesus Christ. Sometimes they refuse to give up a relationship that's not good for them and that God wants them to step away from. Sometimes they refuse to stop worshiping their job in place of worshiping with the church. Sometimes they refuse to be obedient in other areas. When we do this, all we end up doing is living in the wilderness. You just end up with manna. It's not that it's bad. It's just that God has more for you. There's something better than manna. God's got promises that you haven't walked in yet. He's got blessings for you that you haven't received yet because you've got to cross over. You've got to cross over. I want to show you as we get ready to close in a little bit here a parallel story in the New Testament because there's this common theme that kind of runs over and over again throughout the Bible of the people of Israel being hungry and not being satisfied. And it continues on into the New Testament when Jesus was walking the earth. You know, there was this time, which many of you I'm sure know the story, where, you know, he started to gather a large crowd as he would go from town to town teaching. And he was teaching these people all day one time, and the disciples came to him near the end of the day and said, you know, we really should send them home. The people are kind of getting restless. They're hungry. You know, and he said, you feed them. He's like, how we, that would take a year's wages to feed all these people. Where are we going to get that from? When this little boy walks up with five loaves of bread and two fish, and God does a miracle and multiplies it so that it says there were 5,000 men. Most scholars believe that if you add women and children to that number, it was somewhere like 10, 15, maybe even 20,000 people that were fed with five loaves and two fish. And God is such a generous giving God that there were 12 baskets full of food left over when they were all done eating. But as is the case, anytime we eat a meal, right, we're satisfied for a little while, but then we get hungry again, don't we? And so after Jesus finished teaching them, he needed some downtime. So we got into a boat with his disciples and headed to the other side of the lake, but the people see him had a cross, and so they're like, hey, we're going to meet him. So they walk around the lake. You can read about this in John chapter 6, and it's funny kind of the way they pass it off when they run into him on the other side of the lake. They're like, oh, Jesus, how'd you get here? We didn't know you were going to be here. <laughs> sure, you know. And so they're, they're hungry again, so they're wondering if Jesus is going to give them some more bread. And so look at what he says to them in John chapter 6, verse 26. He says, very truly, he says, come on, guys, let's be honest. I tell you that you are looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. You just want more of what I gave you yesterday. You just want your bellies to be full again. He says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father has placed his seal of approval. So, of course, Jesus is using their physical hunger and need for bread to lead them to their greater need, which is the spiritual hunger that we all have. We all walk through this life trying to satisfy the needs of our flesh, but God is always trying to get to the deeper issue of satisfying the hunger in our souls. He says, don't work for bread. Don't work for the temporary pleasures of this life. You need something that's eternal, something that's going to last more for longer than just this moment. 
You've been working for something that's not working. He says, don't work for food that spoils. You're working, but it's not working because it, it fades. When we fill our lives with pleasures and things that bring temporary satisfaction, we will always wind up needing more. You won't find satisfaction in your career. You won't find it in a boyfriend or girlfriend. You won't find it in more money. You won't find it in another drug or another drink. None of that will ever satisfy. Jesus said there's something better than all of that. In verse 29, he would say, it's to believe in me, to believe in me. He's the only way to be satisfied in life. He's the only way to find rest in this life, to experience fullness of God's promises. And the response was a little bit skeptical. And if you're here today and maybe you're not sure what you believe about God and whether Jesus is the Son of God, Maybe if you're here today, you, you can relate with their response to Jesus in this moment because they said to him in verse 30, they asked him, so what sign are you going to give us then that we may see it and believe you? What are you going to do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. How do we know that you're the answer? We know about Moses and the manna. What about you? What sign are you going to give us to prove who you are that we can believe you? Maybe some of you can relate with that. And I wonder if Jesus was thinking, you know, wait, did you guys forget what happened yesterday? I did a sign yesterday. Did you forget that I fed thousands of you with five loaves? And I wonder if God would say to some of you here today that might be a little skeptical that he's already done more for you than you even realize. The fact that you have breath in your lungs, the fact that he brought you here today, the fact that he spared your life over and over again without you even realizing it, the fact that he meets your needs every single day. God says, I've done things in your life. You've just not given me credit for it. So Jesus says to them in verse 32, very truly, again, guys, honestly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Well, that sounds amazing. So in verse 34, they say, Sir, always give us this bread. We want this all the time. And they still think it's about literal physical bread. And he's like, guys, I'm not talking about manna anymore. I'm not talking about the bread that you eat. I'm talking about the things you're trying to fill your life with that, that are only temporary and, and, and won't satisfy. I'm trying to tell you that you need something more than that. So he says to them in verse 35, a very famous verse that many of you know, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. What Jesus is offering is so much greater than what the world has to offer. He's saying, I'm what you really need. Only I can satisfy the hunger in your souls. Jesus is using our need for bread to point us to something greater. He wants us to see that in the same way we need bread to survive, we need Jesus in our lives because we will never find joy in this life apart from Jesus. We will never find contentment in this life apart from Jesus. We will never find purpose in this life apart from Jesus. We will never be satisfied in this life apart from him. He says, stop searching for stuff that doesn't satisfy, that spoils. Only I can satisfy the hunger in your souls. And this is what I want to tell you today. Listen, if you look to manna as your source, it will never be enough. 
But if you look to the master as your source, you will have all that you need. You'll have all that you ever need. The manna was just supposed to lead you to the master. He will meet your physical needs, but he wants to give you something better than you've ever experienced. But you have to make the decision to cross over. This whole passage to me in Joshua, it's an Old Testament story that to me paints a picture and wants to point us to Jesus. I believe the whole of Bible is trying to point us to Jesus. I want to, paint, I want to show you how this paints a picture of Jesus. Because it says they were circumcised, which represents you know, a cutting away. It represents repentance. You know, the New Testament talks about our hearts needing to be circumcised. It's a, it's a point of surrender. It's an act of obedience to trust in God. And so it says, after they were circumcised, they celebrated the Passover, which I explained to you was a ritual that they observed every year, but it wasn't just a ritual to remember something in the past. It was also a foreshadowing and a foretelling of what Jesus would do for us on the cross. He was the spotless lamb of God who took upon himself the sins of the world, whose blood was shed and was applied to the doorposts so that we could be free. And then the day after, it says they ate from the produce of the land. And then the day after that, the manna stopped. So the day between the time they celebrated Passover and the time the manna stopped, there was a day of transition. I don't know if you're seeing this. It's subtle. I want you to catch this. This picture of Jesus. All right? Passover, transition, promise. Do you see it? Passover, transition, promise. Jesus is our Passover lamb who was crucified on the cross on Friday. On Saturday, this day of transition, his body was in the tomb. But on Sunday, God raised him to new life. And God has fulfilled every promise for you and for me forevermore. Jesus is our promise. God has fulfilled everything. The old has gone. The new has come. We don't have to eat just manna anymore. God has something better for you. He has blessings. He has promises for you. But you have to cross over and accept it. You have to trust the process. You have to trust in him as your source and not the things of this world. I believe God wants to do that in our hearts today. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me in a moment of prayer and concentration as we all just focus in on Jesus right now? I believe God is speaking to some people who would say they're in a season of the wilderness right now. It doesn't make sense to you. It's been dry. It's been arid. Nothing but death. And I want to encourage you to know that there is manna for you. There is provision for you to make it through the day. He gives you what you need to make it through the season you're in. But also know that God's not done with you yet. He's got promises for you, but you've got to trust the process. Maybe you've been in this season for longer than you needed to be because you've doubted or you've not believed. Like the Israelites, it should have only lasted two years, but it lasted 40. So I'm here to encourage you today that God's got promises for you. He's not done with you yet. In fact, I just, I want to pray for everyone here today who's in a season of a wilderness. If that's you here today, would you be so bold with all heads bowed and eyes closed to just raise your hand in this place so I can pray for you? I just want to pray that God would bless you with his presence, with his provision, with his promise. Yes, there's hands all over the place here today, people who are in a wilderness. 
God, right now, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would inject hope into people who maybe have lost hope to believe that their situation will ever get better than it is. Lord, would you help them to see the manna in the wilderness, that you have given them provision to make it through the day, to make it through the season. God, but would you help them to not look to manna as their source, help them to look to you, their master, as their source. And God, may you cause them to lift their heads, to see that there are promises that you have in store for them, that you are going to fulfill in their lives. You want to accomplish that for them. Maybe you're here today and you would say, you know what? I have trusted in manna as my God. I've looked to money. I've looked to the things in this world to try and satisfy that hunger in my soul. Nothing has really satisfied. And maybe you're here today and and you're feeling something in your heart. You might have doubts, but... There's something rising up in you that's called faith to know that God has placed you here for a reason, that he wants to reveal himself to you. He wants to come into your heart and show you the love of a heavenly father that will change your life forever. He wants to give your life meaning and purpose if that's you here today. I'm gonna ask you to take a step of faith and to raise your hand in this place if you wanna receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Is there anybody here today that wants to cross over and accept Jesus Christ to stop trusting in the manna of this world and receive the master into their heart. Anybody here today that wants to say yes to Jesus? Lord, we thank you right now for your Holy Spirit, for the work that you're doing in our hearts, God. Thank you for being our Passover lamb. Lord, thank you for having promises for us to, to bless us, to give us a hope and a future. Lord, I pray that you would cause us as a people to not be content to live on manna anymore. Lord, that we would step across into the promise of God. Lord, to circumcise our hearts, to consecrate ourselves to you and to follow after you with faith and with trust. Lord, that we would trust the process that you take us through because we know the purpose of the process is the promise. Lord, you've got promises for us, and I pray that as a people we would grow in our confidence and our expectation to inherit the promises that you've got for us, plans to prosper us. Lord, I thank you for the promises that are yes and amen in you. Lord, we trust you. We look to you, our master, as the source of everything we need. In Jesus' name, amen.